Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. We are, I, I feel like for once, I really need to explain the timing of when we're recording this because everything changes so very dramatically. <laughs> we are recording this on Friday afternoon. Uh, we currently do not know who is going to be the president of the United States, although it certainly seems to be leaning toward Joe Biden after overnight uh, vote counts from, I assume mostly from mail-in ballots, put him over the top in uh, Pennsylvania and in Georgia, or at least put him above Donald Trump. Uh, and we're still waiting to hear back on Arizona uh, and Nevada. Uh, and so almost any combination thereof would, uh, if any of those are called, would put it over the top for for Joe Biden. It's been a long, exhaustive week, but uh, we've got a lot to talk about, including other stuff that's even kind of off the presidential grid. Uh, and uh, with me to talk about is Scott Nober, uh, Platforms reporter for Adweek. Welcome back, Scott. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And T.L. Stanley, a senior editor uh, at Adweek who covers creativity, cannabis, uh, plant-based uh, products. We have you on so many very fun, very niche beats, but uh, I always love having you on the show, T.L. All right. So uh, first, I feel like we need to talk about the presidential race. <laughs> um, I'm not going to make anyone have to live back through the uh, traumatic, constant doom scrolling and refreshing of the last uh, however, 75 days of one week. But uh, Scott, you cover platforms by which I mean, of course, like Twitter, Facebook, uh, pretty much every place people get their information. Uh, so you have been watching the especially how those platforms have handled the largely predictable reaction by Donald Trump and many of his core supporters to uh, oppose the counting process. Uh, Trump had, as we all know, had spent quite a while in the lead up to the election uh, trying to sow some uncertainty around uh, mail-in ballots. And it seemed like he jumped on that pretty much right away as soon as it was obvious that he was not going to have a, a runaway victory on election night. So the president spent the last few months really sowing doubt in the um the legitimacy of our election system, especially with regard to mail-in ballots and um, the evidence and, and um, uh, research around those topics is really solid. Um, there isn't, there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the country, um, despite the president's rhetoric. And that's something that that major news organizations and major social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook know full well and have had a long time to consider. And um, so what we saw on Tuesday night was that predictably in a lot of places, in a lot of the swing states where 
Um, the day of uh, election day results came in first, and then the mail-in ballot votes came in. We saw President Trump take a predictable lead before the starting of, or the conclusion of counting mail-in ballots um, really took effect, and we saw this kind of um, blue shift, uh, which we've been you know, really thinking about and knowing would happen for months to some extent, uh, really start to happen where, um, you know, Pennsylvania started looking like it would uh, turn to Joe Biden and um, and basically every other state, the only exception being Arizona, where you are seeing kind of late mail-in ballots going a little bit more towards uh, Trump and seeing the opposite effect of a Biden lead that's kind of shrinking a little bit. But so um, the platforms were pretty much prepared when Donald Trump started saying, kind of casting doubt uh, on the legitimacy of the process and claiming voter fraud, which he has no basis, in fact, to do. And declaring victory. And declaring victory. Um, and, you know, you had uh, Twitter saying, you know, a month a month before the election what they would do uh, if president would declare victory, and uh, they acted on that. Yeah, the uh, how did I was keeping a close eye on Twitter because I kind of live on Twitter, um, and they did a very uh, I would say proactive job of really getting out in front of. There were long swaths of tweets and retweets of his that were all labeled as uh, you know potential misinformation about the status of the election. How did Facebook do, or what did Facebook do? Well, I think I think it is important to kind of start with Twitter for especially for listeners who maybe didn't maybe aren't on. Twitter as much as we are. Um, so let me go through what they did real quickly, if that's okay. Um, basically, for anything that Twitter deemed violated what they call its civic integrity policy, which uh, concerns big political events, including elections, uh, they labeled, um, labeling is a generous term here, term here, they basically blurred out the offending tweets by the president and other high-profile political accounts and politicians um, and said this this tweet may contain, uh, you know, misinformation about the election process. So what they did there is really interesting, and it's something that they haven't done in previous elections, where they basically turned off a lot of the engagement metrics, so you couldn't really reply to that tweet or like it or retweet it in a traditional way. There's no numbers next to it. Uh, it's hidden behind a screen that you have to click through to, to view. Um, and then, so you can kind of quote tweet it, but that's basically it. The um, and it doesn't have that kind of same algorithmic spread that any of the president's normal tweets or any user would have. Um, so this is a, a huge shift and a huge um, kind of statement that Twitter has made in this election and has been making for months in regard to political content that they are willing to kind of. Um, ensure that they, the at least with high-profile accounts, that they will do their best to stop the spread of what they know is misinformation. Um, um, and then by contrast, uh, Facebook kind of didn't really do all that. They kind of put up, um, they had, for President Trump, he usually posts the same thing on Facebook or his staff posts the same thing on Facebook that he tweets. And so Facebook really just like slapped a, a what I would call a, a contextual label that said like this, you know, if, if you want more information about the election process, here's some more information or the ballots are still being counted. Click here for more information. Uh, doesn't interrupt the algorithmic spread, doesn't really 
due to doesn't really say in any certain terms that what you saw is false. Um, they kind of just have additional resources if you want to see it. So two very, very different approaches. Twitter has also repeatedly said that uh, they have these special exceptions for world leaders. At what point, if Trump loses, at what point does he cease to have the protections of that world leader status? That's a really good question. That's something I, I believe I saw a Bloomberg article about that. Um, didn't read the whole thing, but I think that I think that basically after he would leave office, assuming that he he loses, um, so in January after the inauguration, assuming everything goes to plan, uh, he would lose those kind of special protections. And so we routinely see the president's tweets be um, actioned, as they would say in polite Silicon Valley speak, or um, basically, you know, punished. Um, for individual violations, but he just it just keeps happening. He doesn't get kicked off the platform after three strikes or whatever their policy might be. Um, so you know, we is it possible that Donald Trump is kicked off of Twitter? Of course, it's possible. Is it likely? I have no idea, and we don't really know what uh, you know that world looks like yet. Uh, Terry, I have to say, I always think of you as such a more uh, responsible person with your mental health than Scott and I are, uh, since we spend about 23 hours a day on Twitter and uh, live just completely unhealthy lives. How? What was your week? It's my like? job, David. <laughs> I know, <laughs> and I just do it just because so I can keep tabs on Scott. <laughs> That's my only excuse. Uh, Terry, what, what was your experience like uh, this week? Well, that's that's just a veneer. Griner of that's because I cover cannabis and the whole plant-based world. It, it's absolute facade. <laughs> it's your personal brand. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, built on a foundation of sand. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> because uh, I am not one smidgen healthier than any other media professional at this point. <laughs> but uh, the weed beat is the gift that keeps on giving. And I knew that would be the case this week. Uh, I knew that it would give me something really positive to focus on. And it did exactly that. It lived up to all my expectations. Um, I was able to reach out to my people in, in that world and talk about um, this continued state-by-state state march that's been happening in the country. So five more states added to um, the legalized cannabis movement. There's There was lots of decriminalization talk and ballot measures. And uh, so for me, that was definitely um, a bright spot of the week. And a, a, the, the one positive thing that I could sort of clutch onto by my fingernails. Well, and it also, what's fascinating to me about legalization is that it does cross over a bit across traditional party lines. You know, I don't think either party has a really strong platform. Uh, but as a people, as, I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously, this week is like, what do we as Americans agree on? Or what, what are we starting to agree on? And I feel like cannabis is becoming one of those things where your libertarian crowd, your liberal crowd, like, that almost anybody who's not a hard, old school uh, criminal justice kind of person, like almost, almost all of us are just like, it's fine. It's fine. That's that's so true. And I think what what we saw this week, it, it's interesting to point out that these the, in these five states, 
where we have new legalization, whether it's medical or recreational or both. These are ballot measures. These things happen because of propositions, because the voters decide. So it absolutely is a bipartisan issue at this point. Um, research has shown a, a fair, a far majority in both parties agree that that this should be happening. It's um, it's only happened in a very very few cases where it's been the legislator, the legislature of a state that has decided to legalize for for adult use, for recreational use. Illinois was one of those. It was a really big deal when that happened because that came not from from a voter movement, but from the actual legislators because traditionally lawmakers have been very uh, slow to move on this. In fact, rather spineless. They, um, They wait for the voters to make the statement. They're not making the statement. Yeah, and, and so, which uh, which states were in play this week, and and did they all? Did everybody? Did all these measures end up passing? They did, um, and um, Mississippi is uh, medical only. So I don't think I think everyone expected that that would pass. Everyone expected that most of these would pass. Um, so it was Mississippi, Arizona for recreational, New Jersey for recreational, South Dakota for both at the same time, which has never been done before, and Montana. Now, people, uh, the four of those states traditionally red, and they're um, most of them Trump states. So uh, that was noteworthy as well. So it's a red state, and yet the voters overwhelmingly said Let's legalize cannabis. Yeah, and and uh, we obviously have to talk about Oregon, where we had a new wrinkle in this conversation around legalization of controlled substances uh, in psychedelics, uh, in psychedelic mushrooms. Uh, tell us what happened there and what what it means. And and it, it, I, I feel like it's maybe th- there's a laundry list of what it doesn't mean. Like you cannot just go buy shrooms at a dispensary. Uh, it's not, so tell us what what this did legalize and and then kind of where that category sits compared to uh, cannabis. There's been a lot of interest around psychedelics um, in recent years. There was uh, Michael Pollan had a best-selling book. There's been a lot of investment money in the um, in the space. And certainly a movement among advocates and activists as a treatment. It is very much on the medical level. Um, it is not considered a consumer product. It is nowhere yet in the realm of cannabis. It is not a dispensary product. Um, even in those places that you know, several cities in the country had decriminalized um, psychedelics, it, it's that didn't mean it was legal to sell. It, it's uh, in Oregon, it is in a very, very specific situation. They are setting up basically a treatment program so that it is it is state licensed. It is vetted. Um, no one goes in and buys hallucinogens and walks away with them. Uh, although some activists think we'll get to that point and they're, they're pretty okay with that. Um, Psychedelics obviously have this kind of long and and spiritual history. Things like peyote and ayahuasca, um, kind of ancient in a way. But um, but in the modern sense, 
Oregon is looking at this, and they are the first state in the country to legalize this statewide, looking at it very much in a therapeutic setting, um, supervised by vetted caregivers. And the it, you you talked to some some of the brands, I think specifically Dr. Bronner's, uh, which you know many of us know as a rather eccentric soap brand. They were big funders of of this movement and of of this ballot initiative specifically, right? Absolutely, and they 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 go back a couple of decades in their activism. Um, they have supported and and in this election did support cannabis legalization in a number of states. Um, it's kind of interesting to know that uh, they're not the only brand. They're kind of the most high profile brand to be involved. But you have um, brands like Scott's Miracle Grow also giving money to the uh, legalized cannabis. And you, you can kind of figure out why, right? <laughs> yeah. They just uh, like seeing new forms of agriculture, right? <laughs> exactly. But yeah, Dr. Bronner has a long uh, activism history and um, they're really, they're advocating for drug reform. They have talked for years about the failed war on drugs and how it has disproportionately targeted communities of color, basically decimating many communities. Um, so they want, they want social reform. And so they're pushing it by um, decriminalization, end of prohibition, things like that. They've been very vocal. Scott, remind me, where, where did you grow up, like as a teenager? Uh, South Jersey, outside Philly. So very close to all the uh, end of, of the election action yeah. um, on the Pennsylvania side, of course. Yeah, the uh, I, I was thinking about this after reading um, Terry's story about the about psychedelics and kind of where those stand is, and thinking about cannabis, right? And how now we think of cannabis as this this consumer brand product with brands, with packaging, with all this stuff. And you know, I was just thinking about as a teenager, if you got caught, I'm, I'm from Alabama and still live in Alabama, but if you got caught with a quarter ounce, right, you you were you were going to jail like there was zero tolerance on anything there was no social acceptance there was no legal acceptance certainly there still is not um but then i moved to northern california in 2003 and it was such a like i'll never not to i don't, I don't think this is a big tangent but it was the moment that i realized i was in a very different universe so i lived near uh, san juan ridge uh, which is famous for having some of the best uh, marijuana i'm i'm told and uh it the I, I worked for the newspaper, and they uh, there was a big bust uh, of a bunch of grow operations, and the sheriff told us, yeah, um, we confiscated 14 pounds of marijuana in Ziploc bags uh, from this grow operation, and uh, we, uh, we gave him back seven. And I was like, gave him back seven what? And he was like, pounds. It's like you gave him back seven pounds of marijuana? Like, the sheriff gave... And he was like, well, listen, our county rule is you're only supposed to have five per prescription or whatever it was. And he's like, but, you know, I understand that it's confusing. So I just left him with seven. <laughs> I was like, I am on a different planet. <laughs> it's really it's really interesting. Uh, I live in D.C. now and we have a decriminalized, uh, we've decriminalized marijuana in, in the district, but there's so much federal land around. So you... Uh, if you want to be engaging in, in that activity, you have to be very careful about where you actually are because there's a big difference between being on you know a regular street and being at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, you know, a big a big difference in the law 
between a nothing or you know a, a slap on the wrist basically and a and a felony. Well, and Terry, remind me because this gets at to especially if if we have a change in administration, uh, the big. Uh, confusion when I was in California, which again was like 2003 to 2006. And it was at this really kind of pivotal time for cannabis, right? Where it was, it was legal. Everyone kind of agreed. Different counties had different, you know, different approaches. But most importantly, the federal government was like, no, the DEA was like, it is not legal. And we don't care what your sheriff does. And we don't care what your state does. We can swoop in with black helicopters and arrest everybody. Where does where does that stand in terms of federal enforcement as we continue to kind of see these state by state uh, legalizations? I think the um, the election this week is going to be really meaningful for things like that because it, you know to use a cliche, the people have spoken. They they have said how they feel about this issue. Um, there are people who still exist, of course, like Bill Barr, who is not a fan and who has tried to make life very difficult for a lot of uh, cannabis companies. Um, things like, you know, really frivolous kinds of harassing sort of lawsuits like antitrust and all kinds of, you know, just total time-wasting, um, really intended to try to get under the skin of some cannabis um, companies that are that are absolutely legal and above board. Um, I think on the federal level, BDSA just uh, just put out a prediction. They're a research company. They just put out a prediction that they believe it will be federally legal in 2022. I think that's a little optimistic. I could be completely wrong. Um, the The reason that um, this is a state movement and it continues to be a state movement is because the feds have said we will allow the states to decide for themselves. I think federal enforcement, aside from whatever Bill Barr is doing, has really waned. But if you look at some, like the, sort of the cradle of the real movement here in California, San Francisco, people like Steve D'Angelo, who sort of considered, you know, the godfather of legal weed, he will tell you that, you know, just a, a little over a decade ago, the federal government was trying to seize everything he owned. And yet now, everything he does is legal. Here's a fun pop quiz for you two. Uh, do you know who's at the, supposedly, supposedly at the top of the list to be attorney general under Biden? Uh, Doug Jones. Doug Jones. My, my yeah, own uh, Alabama senator who uh, did not win re-election. Did not. And he, has, lost, he very much lost to a football coach. Yes, to a football coach who I will not, as an Alabama, as a very politically opinionated Alabamian, I will not get into it except to say that Doug Jones had a pretty nice um, backup plan, uh, you know, if he was not reelected, which he was not, uh, to become the attorney general. Uh, he certainly has the background for it. He prosecuted the Klan uh, for the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, which took decades to prosecute, and he successfully prosecuted them. Uh, so he's a real hero in terms of civil rights uh uh, prosecutions. Uh, that said, I have no idea where he stands on on cannabis. Um, I don't think it's ever come up. You know, <laughs> he is. Well, the the problem with not having a federal law on this, the fact that there is no federal legalization, 
Weed is a cash business. It leaves them extremely vulnerable as business owners because they don't have access to banking. They get no federal aid. Um, their, their financing is very difficult. It's not like just any VC is going gonna, is gonna to invest in them. Um, they, have, they have lots of problems. They cannot actually build true national brands because they don't have federal legalization. They cannot be consistent across the country. It, doesn't even CBD uh, fall into that, those kinds of problems? Yes, it does. Yeah, because they. Uh, I know that CBD. One of the big things I've heard about when they talk about the efficacy of CBD and all these university researchers, like we wouldn't know because we're not allowed to research on it because it is a federally controlled substance. Yeah, it's just a patchwork of of rules that that those businesses have to navigate. They're different, as you mentioned. They're different from county to county. They're different from state to state. It's um, and social media is a nightmare for them. Now, um, before we we wrap up, uh, Scott, what else were you noticing this week uh, beyond just kind of the somewhat expected uh, Trump's going to say he he actually won and that these are fake results? I, I feel like that's occupied us so much. What what else did you notice this week in media? Yeah, of course. Online or, media? yeah, just things yeah, that maybe uh, all, uh, didn't get as much attention as they maybe uh, should have because we were all nationally very distracted. Well, I think what's happening right now is super interesting and I can kind of spell out for our listeners who will be listening at a different time where we are in this um, for in this uh, kind of reporting moment about what the results are of the election. Um, and basically this morning, even though um, we as Adweek go by... Um, results from the Associated Press and Reuters um, before we start talking about Biden as the president-elect. Um, a major uh, major media organization called Decision Desk, which was started about uh, eight, ten years ago, um, has already called the election for Joe Biden. And I think that's a really, really interesting kind of uh, schism there. Um, and but that being said, no other major network or wire has done so. So we're really in this moment where we're waiting and a lot of folks on Twitter uh, and a lot of forecasters who are usually a little bit separate from the people that are actually calling the race are kind of wondering, well, why hasn't the race been called for Biden yet? Um, and it's a really interesting question. And, um, you know, I'll, a lot of these desks are very risk averse, I'm sure, but um, it doesn't really seem like uh, like Trump is has got this. So um, and everything keeps trending in the direction of Joe Biden. So I think there's a really interesting media story there in terms of um, whether the president's kind of ref working is affecting the uh, decision desks and maybe buying him some more time. Um, even though this is the game that we all kind of knew was going to be played. Like we were talking about Pennsylvania being called on Friday, you know, two weeks ago. Um, it worked out basically as we thought it would. So I think there's a really interesting thing to kind of pay attention in the next couple of hours and throughout the weekend, if it's not called by the Associated Press and others, um, you know, what that bars. And then specifically when Fox News, which has actually a very reputable uh, decision desk, makes that call. So I think that's one of the really mo more fascinating stories right now in, in, in kind of this pop-up world of election media. Yeah, I personally, I, I think the days of finding out, unless we switch to online voting, 
which I don't think will happen anytime soon. Um, I think the days of us finding out who won the night of the election are probably done. Uh, you know, and I remember having that moment in 2000. <laughs> like we're well, all. I, I think it's interesting because, like, okay, we we adopted. I mean, the country really rapidly mobilized to um, expand access to, to um, mail-in voting and to kind of normalize that as as a way to to do it. And obviously, Democrats have really you know taken that um, taken that up. Um, but I think what's really interesting is the laws and provisions in the individual states about kind of when they can start processing some of these, because I think it's interesting to kind of hype, you know, think through whether how this race would, would play out in media. If let's say Pennsylvania was like some of the other states and started counting mail-in ballots uh, on Tuesday night. If Pennsylvania like looked like it was going to Biden early, this race would probably have been called on Tuesday night. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic. It's one that Trump was specifically hoping for. Uh, he really wanted it to play out this way um, and to kind of make people think twice about, well, it's a really close race or the polling's all wrong and you know you can't trust the system and you know why are we still counting? The election day was Tuesday. Um, and that's kind of a further uh, way that that our, our trust and our understanding in our institutions is is being slightly chipped away at, at a really pivotal and interesting time. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see if Biden or, I mean, I don't think Trump would do this if he's reelected. But if someone really revisited the fact that we have 51 plus different election systems in this country, uh, you had Maine using uh, what's it called? Uh, ranked choice, you know, and and like all this. There's so many different ways you can go about it. And every state's different. My state was different than a lot. That's I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I'm glad that we don't live in a country like uh, Belarus where, you know, the government can just say uh, he won. 95%. As far as you know, like when the federal government controls everything, there are dangers to it. But on the other hand, every single state shouldn't vote <laughs> in a completely different yeah. way. Yeah. And I think, I think like, you know, it's, it's not our job to necessarily fix that system, but it is our job, I think, as journalists to kind of empathize with voters and readers who are confused. And like, even journalists who are covering the elections have to be an expert in you know, all 50 states and, you know, people are joking about, you know, John King and Steve Tornacki becoming ex, you know, knowing everything about Vigo County, Indiana, you know, what, uh, Del Delaware County, Pennsylvania, just like things that no one is expected to know, but it's, it is a really a confusing process. And so when you have uh, political leaders that seek to exploit that and to um, kind of further undermine trust in our processes, it becomes a really fraught situation, and I think that's something that you should that we should all be thinking about as journalists and citizens, um, because our election processes, as weird as they are, are pretty solid, and there isn't widespread voter fraud, and it works. It just takes a little time right now, especially now, um, and all that we really need is some patience. The the one thing I keep going back to is that you know, is Trump tweeting. Why is it every time they count more mail-in ballots, they're almost all for Joe Biden? 
And then it's like, because you spent months telling your supporters not to do it, right? Like, don't use mail-in ballots. And so I do think that no matter who wins, that Republicans will certainly learn going into the next election cycle that if mail-in ballots are an opportunity or an option or early voting of whatever kind, they'll use it now if they've seen that that can be the tipping point. Uh, And especially if there's no valid contest to it. it. American politics may have, you know, may have a lot of things and that you could argue this is hypocrisy, but once something works, both sides do it. You know, that's, that's all. That I mean, at the end of the day, I think we can all be very happy um, as, you know, proponents of democracy and democratic institutions that our voting numbers for, for in total were, were through the roof this year for both candidates um, and f- just in general. And that's a, that is a win for democracy when more people vote our democracy is stronger. I, you know, I vote in every election, special elections, doesn't matter, all of them. And uh, I've never had to wait behind more than five people in line, maybe 10 people in line to vote. Uh, I, it wasn't too bad when I got there, but when I left my polling place, the line was three times longer and went all the way out to the street, uh, which is like uh, hard to describe the geography of it. But let's just say it was, you know, it was like 150 people. Uh, like at a polling place that normally has about 10 people in it, even on a even on a busy election. So, well, we are out of time, but uh, Scott Nover, Terry Stanley, thanks so much for joining me and uh, thanks for surviving this week with me. Thank you, David. Thank you. All right, y'all get some rest. All right, well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by me and Co. M and edited by Lane McGibbity. Uh, if you haven't already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. You can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner, and we will be back next week. <laughs>